Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, in your great mercy and grace, despite our sin, have not played dumb with us. You've made yourself known in Christ and in this word that testifies to him. And so we pray as his disciples now that you would teach us more of him and more of your will for us as his people in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start with a game this morning. Just have a look to the screens. Does this woman look young or old to you? Is that the face of a young woman or an old woman? What's more clear? Young woman. Or both. Okay, yeah, that's right. Okay, we've got the, the old woman looking very haggard, looking uh, towards the right, but actually up towards the right, you have the young woman uh, with, her, with her nice hat there. Okay, let's try, that was an easy one. Let's try the next one. Okay, is there anything more to this beautiful landscape? Sorry, it's a bit small. You have to squint a bit. Is there anything more? Oh, okay, Jake, we should flip it sideways, should we? Okay, let's do that. Let's flip it sideways. Oh, there we go. We've got a woman... And her child below her praying. And the reflection of the water, you've got the hands uh, on either side. Okay, final, final one. I'm pretty sure you won't get this one. Okay, the farmer has lost his wife. Can you find her? The farmer has lost his wife. I will buy lunch for the person who finds her. Because it is practically impossible. Anyone? Especially from this distance. Okay, let's turn it upside down. And if you focus in on the farmer upside down on what is now his left side, just look by his thigh on his left side. Do you see a face there? Yeah, there we go. So in these pictures, there is more going on than what immediately meets our eyes, isn't there? More going on than what immediately meets our eyes. But we need a bit of help, particularly with this last one, we need a bit of help to appreciate that which is hidden to understand the whole picture and what it's saying to us. And in these verses this morning in Revelation, we see the church of Smyrna, a church that is bearing up under much suffering. They're actually doing really well as far as Jesus is concerned. But as a result, they're having a really hard time of it. And Jesus, in these verses, he speaks into their sufferings. And By doing so, he helps them to see that their tough situation is more than what first meets the eye, as he reveals to them hidden realities that are going on behind their hard trials for him. He shows them, and he shows us, we have good reasons to rejoice and endure even as we suffer for his sakes as his people. Well, before we see more of them, let's see where they're coming from. Come with me to our verses. Revelation 2. Let me just read from verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. The angel of the church in Smyrna. 
Smyrna, if you have a look here, we've got a little map coming up. It's just 30 kilometers north from the ancient city of Ephesus, which uh, uh, the last letter that we looked at last week was addressed to. Uh, and it was rivaled only by Ephesus, really, when it came to its fame and its fortune in the whole of Asia Minor, what we see as modern-day Turkey today. They had an impressive harbor for imports and a highway into the interior regions, which meant they were a place of serious business and trade. Serious wealth in Smyrna. But this city, it also had a reputation for being great fans of Rome. They actually had a temple in the very heart of the city dedicated to Dea Roma, the god of Rome. They loved all things Rome. And that meant that the worship of the Roman emperor, Caesar, it permeated every level of the society in this city in Smyrna. Honoring Rome and its ways in Smyrna, it was akin to socializing over food here in KL. It's it's just woven into the fabric of the culture in this city. But as we'll see, the Christians in Smyrna, well, they could have not been more different. And that meant hard times for them. Well, these are Jesus' words to them. Pick it up from the rest of verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes... The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. First thing Jesus wants this suffering church to know is that his words are coming from him who is the first and the last. In other words, his words are the ones that actually make a difference in the end. He is far more powerful than any Caesar of their day. As God's son, he is the first And the last, through him, God created everything. And by him, God will bring all things to an end. So so what Jesus says here goes. His words matter most. He's got the first word and the last word on everything. But he doesn't just speak of his sovereign power here. Let me just say it, read it again. Words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He reminds this suffering church, just even in the introduction, of the time when he entered into this world for their sakes. When as God's eternal son, he took on flesh and was made man. Just like us, but with one key difference. He loved God in every single way that we have failed to in our rebellion against him as the Lord of our lives. Jesus is the only man who never sinned, never disobeyed his heavenly father. And yet that did not prevent him from suffering. The words of the first and last who was dead. See, Jesus is the only one who was without sin, did not deserve to suffer and die as we do. The wages of sin are death, is what we read in Romans. And yet Jesus suffered not for his own sin, but for ours. Taking our place at the cross, what we rejoice in, as he endured God's judgment for our sin in our place. Died our death. He didn't stay dead, though. The one who was dead and came to life. He conquered sin and death in his own body as he rose to new life three days later. And he wants this suffering church to remember that. 
especially as they suffer for him, particularly as their Lord. That he is the Lord who endured death for their sakes and then conquered the grave. Now he speaks directly into their situation. Read with me in verse 9. I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. You see, Jesus wants them to be in no doubt. I know how you're suffering for me right now. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. This church, in their faith in Christ, have become impoverished and slandered by enemies. Not a a, a mere mild form of poverty. It's not the kind of, oh, you know, I'm so poor I can't afford Starbucks this week. It's not that kind of poverty. No, the, the word for poverty here is really strong. In the Greek, it's real poverty, a lack of the basic material provisions that we take for granted every day. It could be that they refused to buy into the corruption that was rife in their city. They knew that their new life in Christ could not be associated with those sinful practices. So their ability to trade in order just to simply make ends meet were rather limited. But Jesus mentions this other group who were going out of their way to keep these Christians as poor as possible. Verse 9 again at the end. The slander of those who say that they are Jews. You see, these guys, they consider themselves very religious. Uh, They believe that they were the ones who really belonged to God, that they were God's people, uh, and they were about his will in this city. And as they did that, they make life very hard for the followers of Jesus. In Smyrna, that was not hard to do. Remember what I explained earlier? This this city has a proud reputation for its loyalty to Rome and to Caesar. And these ethnic Jews were the only ones who were, as it were, exempted from, from the mandatory offerings of incense in worship to Caesar. That otherwise permeated every level of society. Uh, the, the, the sacrifices that everybody else in the city was, able, was expected to participate in. To be good, loyal, upstanding citizens of Smyrna. So as these, as these Jews, they, they bypassed the incense queue each day. And as they did, they would go about pointing to everybody else. Look at these Christians. Look at these Christians who have exempted themselves because they had They had exempted themselves because they they knew Jesus was their risen Lord of life. They knew he alone was worthy of worship as God who had saved them. So some of these ethnic Jews would just single them out. Look look at these Christians. Set them up as public targets. So disrespectful, so disloyal. You know, they're failing to offer that incense that they should. And so the Christians, well, they were just despised in the eyes of their citizens around them. They were robbed of their possessions. Read of that in Hebrews 13. They were forbidden to trade in the marketplace. Their businesses were forced to close. They couldn't even buy basic supplies. It's as if they were banned from shopping at the only local Tesco's in town. Impoverished through the slander of their enemies who showed them up for loving Jesus and serving him as the risen Lord. In the midst of these really harsh conditions, Jesus has a word of encouragement for them. 
There's more to this picture of suffering than is obvious. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Outwardly, these Christians were ragged and penniless. But Jesus says to them, you're rich. You are rich in my eyes. Because as they loved Jesus, even to the point of suffering poverty for him, they showed something true to be about them. That they belonged to him. That they were really his people. They had genuinely been united to him by faith. Even to the point of suffering with him. Even though they were materially poor, spiritually, they were very rich. Why? Because they had Jesus. That means their sins had been paid for by his blood. Uh, They belonged not so much to this wicked world, dead in sin and facing God's judgment, but to Jesus and to his eternal kingdom to come. So uh, as they suffered for him now, just as he suffered for them as their master... Well, they had the promise of being raised like him one day to enjoy glory of him in the presence of God himself who will provide richly for their every need for eternity as they suffered this short time for him now in that place where there'll be no more suffering or pain and death that they had to look forward to. That was the wealth that they had in Christ and no one could take that away from them. So Jesus says, I see your poverty, but because you belong to me, you are rich. Unlike those who were slandering them, uh, those who Jesus states, did you notice, how does he describe them? Halfway through verse 9, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, actually, with these guys, there is less to them than meets the eye. Although these slanderers no doubt thought themselves really religious, uh, that they were the, the physical descendants of, of God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, oh, Jesus makes it clear to them, the, these slanderers of his church, they don't, they don't even belong to God. No, 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 their synagogue, their fellowship, that's with Satan, the destroyer who brought sin and death into our world in the first place as we submitted to him. And his wicked will rather than God. Well, these enemies of Jesus' church, they were still very much in Satan's grip. You know, much like those who claim to be God's people in Jesus' earthly ministry, but were not. See what Jesus says to them in John chapter 8, 42 to 44. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so as these false Jews rejected Jesus with the help of wicked men, had him put to death. So now we see in Smyrna, they reject those who rightly recognize him as God's king and savior for us all. Oh, this religious group, they may claim to be the true people of God, and yet in their deeds, they show themselves to be enemies of his son as they persecute those for whom he died. 
Friends, being one of God's people is not about bloodlines. It's not about relying on a law to the best of our ability and seeking to keep that which he has given. No, we are his people only if we know his son and acknowledge him for who he is, our savior and our king, and so trust in him to be forgiven and reconciled to God. So what does Jesus say here to encourage his church in the midst of their current sufferings? He says, I know. I know your tribulations. I'm I'm not absent. I'm there with you. I'm not distant from the ways in which you're suffering for me, for my gospel. So for us today as a church, if and when we suffer at the hands of our society here in KL, out of our faith and our love for Christ because he is Lord. When we decide not to offer incense in worship of our ancestors and are derided and humiliated by our own family and friends because in their eyes it's nothing but disrespect. Jesus knows that. He knows the ways you're suffering for him. When we decide not to pay that bribe or be part of that shady business deal and so lose the respect of our colleagues or our boss, we have less money to get by. Jesus knows and he commends those who honor him above the comforts of these worlds. For those who, and there are some here today, who have had to endure this, for those who have had to leave home and family behind and sacrificed precious relationships in this life because other religious men claiming to belong to God and do his will have sought to harm them because they hate his son. Jesus knows. Jesus says, I know your sufferings, your tribulation for my sake. And he assures his church that as we suffer for him when necessary in this life, Don't worry, you are truly rich in what matters most as you hold on to me. Things are not entirely as they seem for the Christians in Smyrna. They have eternal riches as they hold on to Christ no matter what. And so do we. Well, for the church in Smyrna, life was tough. How would you go about encouraging someone when they're already facing serious hardships, when they're really up against the wall? Now, one thing that I do that really winds Melissa, my wife, up, winds her up, uh, uh, something crazy, I should stop doing it. She, she's facing a, a difficult problem, tough time at work, or you know, there's a problem with one of her relationships, and it's really weighing her down. It's really getting her down. So, so what do I say to encourage her? Oh, oh don't, don't worry, hun. I'm sure everything will be fine soon enough. Things are just going to get better soon. Don't worry. Of course she knows. Tim, you don't know that. You can't say that for sure. She knows. I'm just trying to cheer her up. And it winds her up something crazy when I try to say these things that I really don't know just to try and cheer her up. We often do that, don't we? We try to cheer others up by by, uh, giving them hope even though we're not sure how things might work out. Don't worry. Things will get better soon enough. (laughs) Jesus' encouragement for his suffering church is very different. Let's have a look in verse 10. When he starts to speak of, of, of what is to come. 
What do they have in their future? Well, he starts those first three words, do not fear. Great, good start. Don't be afraid. You know, don't worry. You're secure. Great. Then we read on. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What you are about to suffer. What? You know, about to suffer? Already the church in Smyrna is, is facing serious trials, and Jesus is basically saying, Don't worry, things are about to get much worse. The church in Smyrna is in for a rougher time in the near future. And yet Jesus says, Don't worry, do not fear. And unlike my flimsy encouragements to Melissa, oh, oh, don't worry, I'm sure things will get better soon even though I can't know. Jesus has some rock-solid reasons to be able to say, do not worry and mean it as they face harder things for him. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Read with me, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, even though they're going to face greater suffering for Christ, he gives them rock-solid encouragements so that they would endure and persevere in faith for him, even as the heat gets turned up even more. He gives them hope that they can suffer, insecurity in the present as they hold on to him and even though some will face death they will know the promise of eternal life which he alone can grant suffer insecurity and even facing death have the promise of eternal life let's look at that first one suffering but secure how do we see that here it can be so tempting for us i think when we suffer because we love jesus to think that he's somehow no longer looking out for us He's not as powerful as we thought. He doesn't really care about us as his church that much. And yet, even as he speaks of these future sufferings for his people in Smyrna, he shows them, I'm in control. You do not need to fear. How do we see it? Well, first, he is the one who decides the scope and the length of this trial to come. Let me just read verse 10 again, a bit more carefully this time. Halfway down. Behold... The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Only some of them would face this trial according to Christ's decision. He, he puts a limit on the number who are going to suffer this greater trial to come. You know, for some in Smyrna, following Jesus to the end, that will mean prison. And as we'll see in a moment, even death. But others will be spared. And this trial that some face, it will have an expiration date. It will be intense but short for just a limited time. Uh, We say that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Uh, These 10 days, they, they, they represent a short time of suffering. I think John literally means here 10 days, like 10, 24 hour periods. He's alluding to what we had actually in our Old Testament reading in, in Daniel. We saw Daniel as he faced 10 days of testing himself. He refused to defile himself when ordered to eat the food of a foreign king who himself thought he was a god. 
Because he knew if, if I eat the king's food, I'm basically, in that sense, in that culture, paying homage to him. And I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with the idea that he is divine. Well, Daniel, he refused fellowship with him in that way. So instead, he was tested for 10 days on just meager rations rather than the bounty of the king's table. He just had vegetable and water. And at the end of that short trial, he was shown to be stronger than those who did eat the king's food. Oh, the Christians in Smyrna, they will continue to refuse to defile themselves. They will refuse to pay homage to Caesar, to worship a man rather than God. And Jesus warns them, so you will have tribulation for ten days. They, they will be tested, like Daniel, for a short time. But the trial won't be long. It, it won't be for all the church And it won't be without a good purpose either. That's the second thing we see. Jesus, he determines the purpose of the trial that they're going to face. He's in control. It's not meaningless. Have a look in verse 10 again. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Oh, oh, the devil wants to destroy them, but that won't happen. Rather, Christ has a wonderful purpose in this trial. This testing of faith, though painful, it's spoken actually very positively throughout the scriptures. When our, when our face is tested in the face of hardships, when we're really put up against the wall because we love Christ and we won't compromise for him. The comforts we have in this life are taken from us for different reasons in times of testing. And as we respond in faith, trusting Christ rather than fear and compromise and giving in, Well, we learn in such times just how sufficient Jesus is. But only as those trials come. When the the daughter of William Booth, the famous missionary, was alone in jail in Switzerland, she wrote one of her most famous hymns. You might have heard it. Best beloved of my soul, I am here alone with thee, and my prison is a heaven since thou sharest it with me. It's only as our faith is tested in the crucible of suffering, when it really costs us to remain faithful to Christ, that we often learn to appreciate just how sufficient he is as the comforts of our own world are taken from us. So as these Christians, they suffer this greater trial to come, Jesus encourages them. You can suffer and you will suffer, but you can do so securely. I'm in control. In every way, for your good. And even for those in Smyrna who would face certain death for him. Well, again, Jesus points them to the bigger picture. A second reason this church need not fear this trial to come. Death is not defeat, it's victory unto eternal life. Have a look in verse 10 as we'll read the whole thing. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. And one brother who lived out this charge was a guy called Polycarp. Now, he, he was very close in his associations with Smyrna. He was actually the bishop of Smyrna. In 115 AD, Uh, actually, we know that he knew John, and it's quite possible he was consecrated by John, who's writing the human author of this letter of Revelation. But on February the 2nd, 
156 AD, at the pleading of his own congregation, Polycarp flees the city because there are men who are seeking to track him down and draw him in front of the authorities because he is resisting the pagan worship of his city. So he flees, and he is tracked down. And on the way back to the city, he is urged by his captors, you know, what harm can it do you just to sacrifice to Caesar? Polycarp resisted. When brought before the proconsul, uh, the guy who was basically the Roman in charge of that city at the time, proconsul said to him, remember Polycarp, he, he's an old man by this point, he's very frail. In fact, he, we know he's at least 86 years old. He says, respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar, and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp said to him, For 86 years I have been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who gave his life for me? He was threatened with wild beasts that he could see down in the arena. You will be torn apart by them if you do not recant. But Polycarp was not moved. And the proconsul, seeing that, that he was not afraid, even in the face of that, said, fine, we will burn you to death. Polycarp replied, you threaten with the fire that burns for a short time and is quickly drenched. You do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in judgment who die apart from Christ. So an angry mob gathered wood for the pile as Polycarp thanked God for counting him worthy of suffering and sharing in the cup of Christ's sufferings for doing so. He was burned to death at the arena of games in Smyrna. In, in his culture's eyes, no doubt, despised. What a waste. What a stupid man. And yet it is that arena of Polycarp's day where he was burned to death that Jesus has in mind when he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, Jesus, he's actually referring to the crown that an athlete would receive after winning a race. Because Smyrna was famous for its games as well. Much like the gold medals that, we, uh, that the winner will get in the Olympics, well, Jesus promises this crown of life to those who will endure no matter what for him. Rather than a human crown, though, that perishes and fades, Jesus promises his servants an eternal crown. That's why it's so important for this church in Smyrna to remember who their Lord is as they suffer for them. Remember how Jesus introduced himself in verse 8 as the one who was dead and then, after death, came to life. He alone is the one who has conquered death in his own body for the sake of his people. Having died the death we deserve for our sin, so that all who trust in him and his salvation and endure with him as Lord no matter what, to the end, would have the promise of eternal life in his name. And that was Polycarp's experience. But many have followed in his footsteps since his day. Only last week we were praying for our sister Miriam of Sudan, weren't we? Convicted of apostasy given 72 hours to recant and align herself with the religion of her culture, and she refused. Result? She now faces the death penalty. And we continue to pray for her and others like her that they might be set free from such tyranny, but they may not be. 
That is the message that Jesus has for his church here. We may face trials to come, and those trials might mean our very lives. One way or another, Polycarp was secure, and Miriam, as she continues to trust in Christ, is secure because the crown of life that only he can give will be hers as she endures for him. As Jesus concludes this message to this suffering church, he's got one final encouragement for them. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You know the saying that that there are some things that are worse than death? Some things worse than death? Well, the second death that Jesus speaks of here, that would be number one on the list every time if we're seeing clearly. It's nothing worse than this. It is depicted later for us in Revelation. We'll come to it at some point next year. It, it is the terrible, eternal fury of God's judgment which falls upon those who have to pay the penalty for their own sin because they resisted Christ and the salvation that he offers us as we receive him as Savior and Lord. All the wrong that we've committed against God and our fellow man, condemned for eternity under his wrath. And yet, as we hold fast to Jesus and his cross, he promises us, you do not need to fear, you will not be hurt by that threat of judgment to come. Just as his path to glory was paved with great suffering, so we as his disciples will be called to suffer in various ways for his sake in the midst of a sinful world that does not know him or seek him as Lord. Jesus says, this is how you conquer as my people. By living and, if necessary, suffering faithfully for me. By remaining faithfully with Jesus and living with, with him as Lord, both in the good times and in the hard times. And as we do, his promise is that we will not be hurt by that which is most terrifying, the second death. That judgment doesn't have any hold on us anymore as those saved by his blood. Well, Jesus, he's done much to encourage his suffering church, but when we bring it to us today, for those of us, his people, who are serving him, at least for the moment, in more peaceful times, how should we respond to these words? Serving Jesus in fairly peaceful times. I mean, we, we do see the occasional attack against the church here in Malaysia, don't we? Mostly in the media, rather than through force. There are a few examples, but not many. The majority of us, including myself, I know, we're, we're affluent. We're not poor. We're safe. We're not harmed. We're protected. We're not vulnerable. And if we are living faithfully with Jesus as Lord and doing the work of his gospel, well, then we can give thanks to God for such peaceful times that enable us to share him with others and do his will more easily. And yet Smyrna's willingness to suffer much for Jesus when they had to. And Jesus' encouragements for them to remain faithful as they suffer more in the future. That's a real challenge for us, living in these more peaceful times. In our hearts, do we share in their conviction 
that Jesus is worth suffering for? Or do we shrink from the very idea of any kind of hardship? I remember when I first arrived at uni, the uh, accommodation that was normally provided for those going into the first year was was fully booked out. And so uh, we had to basically get into smaller groups of other people just arriving from uni and and find our own accommodation. We'd go out into the city uh, and find a house. uh, And as long as we had the right number of students and the the house was the right size, then we'd just group together and we'd say, okay, let's just live together in this house for, for the first year. So I got together with a group of nine other people. Uh, and I was the only Christian. It was a big house. Uh, nine, uh, yeah, so, but I was the only Christian. And, and, and just a few days in, uh, we all decided, because we didn't know each other that well, we'd just met each other, we we're going to live with each other for the, 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 the year, we decided we'd all just go out for the evening into the city and get to know one another a little bit better. And we were waiting for a bus on Cowley Road, if you know Oxford, Cowley Road, pretty famous road. And one of my new housemates, didn't, didn't know him very well at all at this point, he, he noticed, as we were waiting for, the bu- uh, for, uh, for our bus, another bus come down the road. Not a public bus, a church minivan. And it had printed on its side, John 3.16. Okay, so a gospel, clear gospel message. And as soon as my new housemate, he saw that, on the side of the bus, he just blurted out in front of us, I hate that. I really hate that. Stupid, religious nutters. But but then he he kind of got a bit self-conscious. He suddenly realized, oh, I'm in a group of people I don't know so well. And so he said immediately after, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Are any of you religious or anything? And I'm standing right there in this group with them, We don't know each other, and I've been given this terrific opportunity to at least share with these guys. At the very beginning, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Maybe not saying it like that, but that Jesus is my Lord. I I can nail my colors to the mast at at the very beginning. So what do I do? (laughs) I didn't say anything. Instead of being faithful to Jesus being thankful for what he had done for me, and so testifying to him as Lord, at least to the point of just simply saying, Jesus matters to me, actually. Let me tell you why. Instead of being honest with them, I just, I kept quiet. And you know what was going on in my head? I I thought to myself, you don't really know these guys yet. And you've got to live with them for an entire year. Who who knows how they're going to react if you tell them, in this culture, I'm a Christian. Oh, it could mean really difficult times ahead. It's, it's too early, Tim. Just, just, shh, don't worry. I told myself, it's just sensible. Keep quiet. And of course, what it really was going on, and I can see very clearly in hindsight, it was, it was pride. Pride in my heart. Because in that moment, I feared my new housemates who I had only met a few days before, and their opinion of me... And the discomfort that could possibly come if they did not think much of me, far more than Jesus, who had died to save me and bring me to eternal life. So fear, not faith, was ruling my heart in that situation. For us living in peaceful times... We need to ask ourselves, what is ruling our heart? 
If we have to choose between Christ and being aligned with him, or the comfort and acceptance and peace we can enjoy in this life, which one will we choose? Christ and the encouragements he gives us here, or when we're pushed to it, compromise. I think I'll keep quiet about Jesus at my work. It might not be so good for my job. I think I'll play along with my family in all of their traditions because I don't want to lose their respect. Serious tests. Opportunities to suffer, yes. But Christ is the Lord of our hearts. And what he offers us is far, far greater than any commendation of man. John Stott, I think, quite wisely wrote these words in the light of this letter. He said, I am not recommending that we develop a martyr complex or that we court opposition. I am just saying that if we compromised less as Christians, we would undoubtedly suffer more. Friends, Smyrna was a suffering church, not because they went looking for it, but because they would not compromise their faith. They were a suffering church because they were an uncompromising church for Christ. And so Jesus commends them. I don't know if you notice, unlike most of the other letters in these opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus has no criticism for this church, which are suffering for him. Because they showed in that suffering they have not compromised for the sake of their comforts in this world. And yet they they still needed encouragement to endure greater trials to come. If we are going to be faithful to Christ now, even as we suffer a little in the opportunities we have to serve and honor him, if we are going to be faithful at smack when times, if God wills, greater times of testing come, well then, like Smyrna, we need to be mindful of the hidden realities that Jesus reveals to us here. That there is more going on in the picture as we serve and, if necessary, suffer for him in our world. Jesus says, you can be made poor in the world's eyes and yet rich in me for eternal life. You can face death itself, if necessary, and only receive the victory of everlasting life in my name. So every trial that we face for him, it's simply his means of refining our faith, more precious than gold. So friends, hear the call of Christ our captain. He says to his church today, I know your trials. Do not fear. Be faithful even unto death. Because the one who conquers the one who conquers in his name, will not be hurt by the second death. O church, arise, put your armor on, hear the call of Christ our captain.